there was this guy, he was very celebrated, good looking, tall, bald. Everybody said, you'll never pull him. And I was like, watch. And so I somehow made my way to, you know, switch over there to talk to him. And not switch. Switch all the way over there with my little, you know, 16 year old, 17 year old figure, however old that was at that time. And I got his attention. He was interested. We started going out. And then I started hearing he beats women. He's giving women diseases. He's done this and that. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. So we're going to figure out how to ghost this one because that's a little, we don't want to play that much. So I tried to um, very passively ghost this one. And he wasn't taking no for an answer. This is back when you had to use push button phones connected to the wall. He would call my house. You know, hey, let's go out. No, I'm busy. And after like the second or third rejection, he started threatening me. And he's like, I'm going to take you to a place where you're going to be begging to see your family. And I'm like, yo, you crazy. Like, that's that bull coming out. You crazy. Like, you lying. And so I kept hanging up. Whatever. Stop calling my house. Like, you crazy. Leave me alone. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Man Fast Podcast. This is part two of the woman with the issue of love. We are talking to the beautiful Sarah Gray. She's my she's my big little sister. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we are, this is our second week talking to her. And we left off after you were telling us about, I mean, the craziest time of your life where you were stalked by people who, I mean, these were some men that were killers. And you talk about this being the time that actually turned you toward God. What, what I'm so amazed about, because I know I said it already um, last week, I talked about how it was like the enemy was trying to come after you your whole life. And he really did use rejection and issues of the heart, wanting to be chosen as the tool to try to snare you. Mm -hmm. um, before you even kind of go into how that incident with the with that man and actually the other one as well kind of shifted you toward God. I want to ask you how much of that traveled with you into your adult life because I know a lot of this was in your teens and even probably early 20s. How many of how much of this traveled into your adult life before you were you had to just say look enough is enough? Mm, that's a really good question. And the truth is, I think that it's it's been with me for all of my adult life into my 40s. And I would say in the last couple of years, I've finally been able to see that, you know, the church is really good at masking stuff. And I threw myself into faith. I threw myself into um, becoming the best minister, preacher, counselor I could be. And I thought that faith was just toughing it out. You know, I don't have to deal with it. So if any thought came up, maybe a memory, a fear, um, or what I didn't realize was still that kind of cancer of my soul with my low self-esteem, I would just kind of suppress it. So I would say I I was able to get over my bad boy um, fetish, I guess. I, guess. I mean, I, I in ways I probably may still carry that, but definitely not into the criminal world or anything like that. But I uh, trust me, the church has its own bad boys <laughs> in, in, in its own way. But I um, I was able to get out of that world altogether. I came completely clean out of any world of drugs and um, uh, misuse of alcohol and all those kinds of things. And, and I got to the point, even before my ex-husband, where I was like, I'm not dating any more drug dealers. I'm not going through that anymore. And part of that was because several of my friends also died 
from drug overdoses. It, in that, that window of time when I was leaving Tennessee to go back to Maryland, within those first two years, I lost two of my uh, closest childhood friends to drugs. And so I was to the point where I'm like, I don't even want that world anymore. But I think that what stuck with me the most that I can identify now was that sense of being an anomaly again. What is wrong with me at the core that Satan is literally trying to kill me over and over and over again. And I haven't even touched on some things that are coming back to my mind now. At, at, at 10 years old, someone came at me with a butcher knife. I was pushed out of the way. They stabbed the furniture instead of me. And so this thought was just constantly reiterated that I don't deserve to live and that people are coming after me. And so I actually have probably just in the last few years been able to finally get to the core of understanding a, all of those attacks from a different viewpoint, not that I wasn't worthy of living and that I was an anomaly, but more that I was chosen by God, that I had a purpose and even being able to turn it around and what therapists call reframe it hmm. and see it as they try, but never could. They tried, but they never could. What is it about our forties that we begin to reflect on some things and shift? Forties are awesome. <laughs> They are. I, I'll tell you, I have not felt even because this is grown women TV. I've never felt sexier in my life than I have now that the Lord has I've allowed him to process me and um, and I'm, I'm coming into my own. But it wasn't until I really hit, I think, 40, 41, uh, obviously 42, because that was the, the year that he was like, give me a year, give me a year, no distractions. And so going into, you know, last year. But I, I just I feel I just feel so good now. Um, and it's just something about those 40s. It's just something about those 40s. So you talk about the fact that this man stalks you to the point where your family has to uproot and move back to Baltimore. And then God turns around. Well, wait, no, let's start there. So you say this is when things begin to shift in your life and you begin turning toward God. Talk to us about that. Right. Well, my, my family actually stayed in Tennessee, but I left. And so they ended up leaving eventually, but they had to be under a special police watch for a little while. They said, we'll keep checking on you just to make sure. But now that I was gone, they were hoping that he would leave my family alone because they weren't really the target. So um, speaking of when it began to shift, I, va I vaguely remember this conversation, but going back to my mom, she's a theme today. My mother was the one in the car Packed up my cute little Mitsubishi Mirage I had with my Hoochie Mama license plate in the back window that I got airbrushed at the mall. So just picture this, right? And I've got my uh, cassette tape going and my mom and I are driving up the interstate 500 miles approximately from the Nashville area back to Baltimore. And I'm going to move in with a high school friend. And uh, she said that I told her that day, I thought that God had a plan for me. And I wasn't uh, a, a Christian. I was not a believer in Jesus Christ, but I was a deist, I guess you could say. I believed that there was a deity, there was God. My mother was always the same. She always believed in God, but neither of us were professing, professing Christians at that time, though we'd heard. My mother had a lot more wisdom um, and knowledge of Jesus in the Bible than I did, but we were just not traditional Christians. But I believed in God. And one of my boyfriends at that time kept telling me I needed to get saved, believe it or not. And so I believed in God. And she said that I told her that God had a plan for my life. So 
Dr. Hall, it gets worse for it gets better. So worse then. We're here. Yeah. We're here it, for it. It gets worse. Okay. So wow. I move in with one of my friends from high school, not knowing that she was addicted to heroin. And not knowing that most of my friends from that that earlier season of life prior to when I moved from Maryland to Tennessee were all addicted to heroin. And uh, she literally begged me to do heroin with her, though I would not. I never did it. And uh, in that year, that was the year I think going from 18 to 19, I lived at her house because I had nowhere else to go at that point. I was just trying to get away from this guy. And uh, people were in and out of the house. There were um, drugs all over the house. And uh, your girl, Dr. Grace, was at one point shackled, handcuffed, and placed in the back of a police car, taken in for questioning, fingerprinted, and cavity searched because I was in that house. And by the grace of God, they let me go after questioning, and they did not uh, officially book me. And so then I moved out of that house, and I went and stayed with whatever the primary boyfriend was at that time. And he ended up putting his hands on me. So then I went and moved in with another a family member. I'm trying to be careful because I want to protect those that are still in process. And that family member ended up having a really extreme drug addiction problem. And so then I had to move out of that house. And then I moved in with another friend. So I went from house to house to house to house. And then finally, uh, by what I believe was the grace of God and his mercy, even reaching out to me, I got this great job. And I was able to finally get uh, the apartment in the car I was telling you about in the previous episode. And now I'm kind of like, okay, all right, I got a little stability now. Got my nice car. Got my for me, it was a really nice car back then. Um, got my two bedroom apartment, and you know, I'm 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 doing it big. I've got my nice job, and now this is what I'm starting to go into. Okay, well, at this point, life is crazy. Everybody and everything is crazy, and this is when I started considering being an exotic dancer because it just still wasn't enough. I guess the drama had subsided enough to where I needed some new drama. And during this time, to be honest, I remember living in that apartment. We had the police out there here and there. You know, I was always involved in some little scuffler drama. And I started to cry out to God a little bit and uh, just ask him, like, why am I going through this? I got baby mamas meeting me in the parking lot, wanting to fight me over their boyfriends. And I got this is going on. And I got, you know, I was still always ending up in some drama fights. And I, I was a little bit of a fighter. And so I was starting to get irritated. And around the time that I met my ex-husband, who was just, you know, a cat that was hanging around the neighborhood at that time where I lived. I was not looking for a boyfriend. I was not looking for anything. And honestly, there's a long story behind that. You'll have to get the book if you want to know the rest of the book. Um, he was pursuing, pursuing, pursuing. And we started our relationship just getting high together, getting drunk. Our first official, unofficial date meetup was watching New Jack City, uh, smoking blunts and getting drunk. And he walked me home that night and then he just started popping up around my apartment with weed. So I'd let him in and we'd hang out. And then over time, <laughs> over that next year, my best friend at that time was um, sexually uh, violated in my apartment by one of the employees of the apartment complex. I had to move out of there. Oh, wow. And so in moving out of there, I mean, it was just. Something, one thing after another. After another. And this is all. I left my house at 18. This is between 18 and 19. And um, so 
this is all in one year. And so then in that in that pocket of time, again, two of my friends had died from heroin. Several friends from high school were just, you're getting notice after notice. Hey, this one committed suicide. This one was murdered. This one was shot. This one. Blah, blah, blah. And so it was just death and um, destruction. And so at, at this point where myself and who I later married, we moved all the way across from one side from east to west side of um, the outskirts of Baltimore City. And that's when I really started crying out to God. And I found out I was pregnant within about a month of that move. So while I was pregnant, and at this point, I don't know what's come of that guy who I ran away from. Then another one of my exes, uh, ex situationships, he was on the run from the police and he was wanting to come to Maryland to stay with me. And I'm like, no, you can. And anyway, long story short, he never threatened to kill me, the second one um, out of these two that I was very afraid of, but he was not trying to let go of the relationship either. And he had gotten involved in a situation where um, a few weeks uh, after our last conversation, he turned himself in and he was incarcerated for the next almost decade for a murder. And um, he was hoping to come stay with me to avoid that. But I think I think his mom or someone actually convinced him, just go turn yourself in and it'll be better that way. But he was calling me from prison all the time then. So here I am pregnant. I'm, I'm trying to figure my life out now. I'm with this one guy that just stopped selling drugs a few months before because I told him I wouldn't date him if he didn't stop selling drugs. And then I got my ex situationship calling me from prison, telling me he wants to marry me when he gets out now. And I don't know what happened with the other stalker. And then I, you know, I got the one that I thought I was in love with. We are talking about the man fast right and the woman with the issue of love <laughs> so I was really all, all the things <laughs> I was I had all this going on so I'm like oh dear god I got a baby now and another one that I forgot all the way about that just popped in my head another guy who was just to me someone I hung out with sometimes he had word on the street I'll kill her and her baby because she messed things up with me and my girlfriend because he rejected someone for me and I rejected him and it was one big love triangle so oh, another murder threat so now I'm in Baltimore and a friend of a friend tells me, hey, such and such said he'll kill you and your baby if he sees you. So watch your back. So I'm at this point where I'm like, God. And I literally got down on the floor, my sixth floor apartment, Locker in Maryland, right outside of the outskirts of Baltimore City, Cedar Towers. I'll never forget it. I said, God, if you're really real, I had dated Muslims. Um, I had dated atheists. I had dated people that said they were Christians. I was like, whoever you are, I will serve you. If you show me who you are, if you reveal yourself to me, I will give you the rest of my life. But I need something real. I need something true. I'm scared for my life. I'm tired. And it's bad enough that I'm self-destructive. But what I won't do is destroy this child's life. Please. Mm -hmm. And that was in 1999. And it took about the next uh, 10 months to a year, but I started opening my heart to Christian television, Christian music, and the message I once rejected, where I was like, oh no, Christians are fake. These guys, they went to church. Oh Lord, okay. Oh, not all of them, but some of them. They would, I sat down with drug dealers that would pray every time they ate. I'm like, I don't want nothing to do with right. God, y'all are fake. That was my mindset. But this, this Christianity I once rejected and saw misrepresented, it won my heart. And there came a time where the second part, part two of that prayer was one day after I had said the sinner's prayer a few times where I was like, okay, God, forgive my sins. I don't want to go to hell. Whatever the TV evangelist said, yeah, yeah. 
complete and partial and not really what I know now to be the real, true, holistic message of salvation, I finally got to a place where I understood I can't just ask Jesus to forgive my sins so I can go to heaven. I must surrender my life to God. And so I was in my kitchen. Matter of fact, one more of the worst memories and traumas I ever experienced was that my ex-husband and I had a, a young friend, Devron. And Devron used to come to our house, hang out with us. He would drink with us. He would do all kinds of stuff with us. We weren't living right, but he went to church every Sunday. If he had to take three buses to get there, Devron was going to church. And my Ooh. last conversation with Devron before um, he had left one morning was an argument about God and Christianity and all this kind of stuff. Cause I'm living now with my child's father, baby is born. And I'm still in that process of trying to figure out what is real and what is God, um, who is God. And so we get a call one morning that Devron had gotten in an altercation and was shot and killed point blank, um, outside of a, a store after he ran into the store for uh, protection to try to get away. The second he walked out, they took his life. And my ex-husband and I, we weren't married at that time. We were getting married the next week. We were engaged. Uh, we took turns crying. We were both devastated. Why Devron? He was 15. This boy would do anything to show up in church every day. Why him? Like, okay, we understand why this one and this one and this one. And maybe we don't understand, but Devron, why? Like he was a good kid. He had a good heart. He wasn't, you know, yeah, he partied. You know, our mindset back then was like, look, this was still one of the good ones. So I got angry at God. And I, I got before God and said, I prayed your sinner's prayer. I I said, uh, forgive me, and I'm tormented. I can't sleep at night. I'm angry. And I was like mad at God. I'm like, where are you? And God said to me for the first time ever, I heard God's voice. He said, you haven't picked a side. And I saw a line going down my kitchen floor. And I've told the story all over the country and all over the world through media. I saw a line going down my kitchen floor. And God, at that moment, just downloaded into my heart an understanding that I had to make an absolute clear decision to surrender my life to God, that asking for forgiveness so I could go to heaven. I didn't understand at that time why that was incomplete, but that was incomplete. So I, not knowing charismatic ministry, not knowing anything about the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, any of that, I, I lifted my hands up in my little kitchen and I looked up and I said, I surrender. Fill me with your spirit. That was 25 years ago. And I so much, uh, I changed so much in the next couple of days and weeks that my ex-husband and his friends did an intervention on me. They all came over one night and said, something wrong with you. You don't want to go out. You don't want to do this. You don't want to do that. You know, my ex-husband want to go out and drink and party and I just didn't want to go. They're like, you don't want to do anything. Are you depressed? What's wrong with you? I was like, I don't know. I just, I just feel different. And so I told God, now that we were talking, <laughs> I'm not going to church. Church people are crazy and they're fake. <laughs> Guess what God told me? Yes, you are. And so I joined my first church home. We got married. Uh, Devron was supposed to be, uh, I can't remember what he was, uh, usher or something at our wedding. And we got married and we both decided to go to church together. And we were baptized together. We were ordained together. We even started a church together over the next course of, you know, the next however many years. And uh, that is when life really changed for me. So unfortunately, I guess I was one of the stubborn 
uh, stubborn converts. It took a lot for me, but it was getting broken down to the point where I couldn't drink it. I couldn't drink enough. And being pregnant for me, I wanted to protect my child. I did have a certain level of values where I was like, I'm not going to be drinking and smoking and getting high pregnant. So I had sober pain when I was pregnant for the first time in my life. I, I couldn't cut myself. I couldn't um, get high. I couldn't, I, and I didn't want to be promiscuous at this point. I wanted to protect my baby by every means necessary. So that put me in a space where I had to deal with my pain and my pain pushed me into God's face. And God revealed himself as Jesus Christ, who I know now is God in a body that walked the earth as the embodiment of the father to mm. point us back to his heart, to call us to repentance or to turn our hearts to him so that we could be resurrected, not just in the, uh, after, what do you say? The afterlife but now and that day i know now based on my studies all these years i was born again i yeah. actually received a new birth now why i know we're not here to talk about theology but why yeah. didn't i receive it before because i had believed but it wasn't coupled with repentance a lot of the evangelists were teaching believe on Jesus, but it was an incomplete message because I had never turned my heart to God or repented. And according to the scriptures, when you really study the whole counsel of God, true salvation is not really valid. And so you have believed unto repentance. And when you believe unto repentance, you are then sealed, awakened, reborn, and have the Holy Spirit alive inside of you. And it wasn't until, now, Dr. Hall, you know we're keeping it all the way real today, right? When I went to go smoke weed, because after my son was born, and I felt like I could be a responsible weed smoker. <laughs> All right. Day, time, and location to do it. I went to get somebody left some weed at my house one night. After, when I was uh, when I was uh, pregnant, I was very careful, and I was like, okay, and I'm seeking God. I'm trying to to be good person. That was like my 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 concept of righteousness, like be a good person. So whatever I thought that was, I was trying to be that. But after, you know, I had the baby and I still never heard anything from God about marijuana. So someone left it at the house. I'm going to light it up. And when I tell you, I knew something had happened to me after that because I went to do, though I was changing in a lot of ways, I went to do something I'd done before with no conviction. I started smoking weed when I was 12 and I felt something totally different. And I never, ever, ever in my life did it again because I was in the same body, but I was no longer the same person. Uh -oh. And I couldn't figure out why I was so upset. And I was like, something is wrong. I can't ever, ever, ever do this again. And so that began to happen with me in different areas. And I finally did end up going to a church, like I said. And in the initial stage of that, stage of that church membership, I started telling them what was going on. Well, I'm throwing out CDs and I'm throwing out clothes and I, what's wrong with me? And they began to teach me about the Holy Spirit and consecration. I literally had an experience that was so supernatural. I didn't even know what was happening. And I had to have people explain to me from a biblical perspective what took place. And now it's become a great passion of mine to study and teach um, salvation. And we call it soteriology in the theological world and pneumatology about the Holy Spirit because it was the difference that brought me to a place where I can look back and say, I never picked up uh, another uh, you know, blunt in 25 years now to y'all that are still believing God for deliverance. We're not judging you, but that was one of the first things God delivered me with no effort. There are other things that did require effort, but I'm not the same person. I was born that day. So I'm really just 25 in my spirit, but I've been able to come out of so many different things. So that's where it began. And I fast forwarded all the way through pastoring. And then when I went through my divorce, Dr. Hall, my divorce was the first um, real 
sobriety check I probably had in all those years of how many things I was still not delivered from once mm. the mandate of a relationship came off my life. And that's where even though I had operated different for so many years, there were still some things that I didn't even know were in me. So then I had to almost go through a whole brand new renewal process to start dealing with all the things I had brought, but they were masked by marriage. And when I no longer had that, even if it was toxic and we had problems, there were still some things that it kind of kept a plug in. And so he was removed. And then I really had to deal with sober, completely sober, sex-free, man-free pain. And I knew at that point, I can't go to my old go-tos. And that also started to usher me into a greater place of having to seek God for deliverance. Well, what was that like? Because, you know, like you said, you were married. You were married for what was it? you said almost 12 years. We were together almost 14 years and married for almost 12. Yeah, married for almost 12 years. You you know what it is to have a man there. And even I know what it's like. You know, the second time I was married, I was married almost 13 years. And I remember the silence for me at night was the loudest mm -hmm. because that is when I, you know, the realities of me being the single mom working, everything that I was going through, that's when everything just stopped. And I remember for years, I slept with a pillow next to me because I was used to somebody being there, even though by the time we kind of came to the end of our marriage, we're friends now, but by the time we kind of came to the end of the marriage, I didn't, I I was over it. You know, we we just all kind of go through that. So I was over it, but I real I didn't realize how much I enjoyed having somebody right there. So for years, I would have actually two pillows that were like almost the length of him um, there. And I did not sleep on the right side of the bed, you know, because that was always his spot. And, um, and so I went through, um, for me, my go-to was to fall into the arms of somebody else. That is how I distracted myself from the pain. How did you happen to manage that? Um, not going to the go-tos, how did you manage doing that? Cause I know there's a woman on here listening mm -hmm. that she may be coming out of a relationship long-term, short-term, and it's like, okay, but this is what makes me feel good. This is the Band-Aid. How do I not go to that? Ooh, it's, a, it's a great question. So one thing that really was a stabilizing force for me initially was the fact that I had these seven babies looking at me. Right. And I knew like, okay, I have seven children, again, 12 down to one-year-old. And I had had three babies in three years prior to my divorce. So I had a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a one-year-old. And wow. first of all, I didn't have a lot of time nor energy to think too deep about dating anyone or going anywhere. And I had them watching me. I also was a full-time female senior pastor of a church. And those people were looking at me. And then even when I turned the church over to someone else and made a decision, you know what? Here I go again, back from Tennessee to Maryland again. I went back. You're young. You're like early 30s. I was, I think, 32, maybe at that time. I'd have to do the really math. For all of that. And so we ended up, two of the people that were at my church, two young ladies, they were like my Ruth and Orpa, and they came with me. And we went back to Maryland. I went back to the church I used to be under before I had left and started my own and uh, took the kids up there. So then I had that accountability. And my pastor at that time, who to me was like my father at that time, and uh, he said, do not date for a year. Do not do anything like he said, men in the church are already asking about you. They wanted, I was Pastor Sarah back then. They want to know about Pastor Sarah. So that having the reinforcements of all these people looking at me 
And this pastor, you know, watching over me really helped me to probably just to be totally honest, since we're keeping it 1000% real today, my pride wasn't gonna let me fall. Like, no, and nobody. Okay, but guess what happened? Over the next year, that all unraveled, that leader ended up putting me in a situation where I knew I wasn't safe there. We'll put it like that. Mm-hmm. So I had to leave that church. I no longer saw him as my father. I, I, I didn't feel that I was safe in that situation. And so that was like a huge um, force of stabilization that I no longer had in my life. And then the anger from, you know, I had to deal with the ex-husband. I had to deal with people's opinions. There was stuff I didn't even know over that year um, how much pain I would end up being in. Because when I said, you know, I'm done, wrote my name on the divorce papers and walked away, I kind of thought, well, that was the end of the thing. Right. It's my new life, right? But when I signed those papers, it was the beginning of some really hard times. So over that first year and a half, I went through a lot of pain, a lot of family, friends, people I thought I would never be disconnected from started disconnecting from me. I started getting to the point where my children were, some of them were angry. Some of them were too young. They didn't even know what was going on. Some of them were starting to feel anger. And then it was just getting to the point where now, and I was demoted at my church publicly in front of everyone. And I had not, I had not, listen, I wasn't perfect as a wife, but I was not responsible for what took place for us to be divorced. I was faithful. My divorce was done as much order as possible. And I still to this day can't explain exactly why that was done. I was demoted and put into a very tough situation. So I was humiliated. I was angry. I was now what we would call uncovered, though my beliefs about covering are not probably as religious as some other people's, but I was not in a space where I felt supported, covered, and protected. And then a music minister showed up telling me he loved me and that I was his wife. And so about a year and a half, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe even going into two years after my divorce, I had held it strong. I'm like, I got this. I'm saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost. Ain't nobody touching me. And um, and there was some flirtation and different things over that year. I didn't totally honor what I was told, but I got all the way out of order when I met someone who, um, when I tell you it felt like deliverance, but it was really captivity in disguise because everything that was said to me sounded so good. Oh, I've been watching you for years. You're such a woman of God. We could do ministry together. I'm in love with you. I know you're my wife and all these kinds of things. And so here's my first toxic situation after my divorce. And that was truly when I started realizing I thought I had it. I had it. I don't have it. And it was in that situation where I prophesied, Dr. Ha prophesied to him the whole relationship. Uh, we sat down one night, we were at dinner and we were hanging out, but I said, we're not dating. We're just hanging out. This is before I gave myself into it. And he's like, I love you. You're my wife. And someone saw me and they recognized me, Sarah Grace. They knew me from social media. And I was Sarah Grace, Sarah Grace. And, and he said, well, it's good that uh, people saw us together because you know, you're going to be my wife. And I looked at him across the table and I said, you are going to pursue me until you get my heart. And the second I respond and I engage in this relationship, you're going to bait and switch and it's going to end terribly. And even though I said it out of my mouth, I walked through everything I just said. I had- what what part, which, which Sarah Grace was that that showed up? Was that the one that thought she could control things from years ago? You know, the one that thought, let me just speak this. Because I don't think you probably knew that you were prophesying. I no. think 
did not. I was going to say, was that the one that was like, look, let me flip the script and be in control? Is that what you thought you were doing? I've never thought about that till just this moment. But you know what? It might have been because, again, there were things that were under the surface I didn't have to deal with. And so here I was, and I kept on saying, no, 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 we're not dating. And finally, when I did say, okay, let's come out as a couple. We're, we're hanging out. We're, we're dating at this point and all, for all intents and purposes. Oh, I don't know if I'm ready to share that with my pastor. I don't know if I'm ready to um, tell my family. And I found out there were like three or four other women that had the same narrative being told to them. And I was so hope heartbroken and devastated. And in that case, I was able to at least walk away and say, no, okay. But when I tell you, I'd never been played by someone in church before. And so this was a new game. And I tell you that old Sarah wanted to come back out and she wanted to come back out in full force and effect. But I knew enough that uh, uh, Paul said that which I want to do, I don't do. And that which I do want to do. You know, I knew that there was this war in my members, as the Apostle Paul says, and that I needed to defeat it or I was going to be in a lot of trouble. So when I tell you all those emotions and anger and wanting to play that role and what I did was when I found out, I just disconnected. I broke it off I, and I did nothing. I went into depression. Um, I continued to preach. I continued to write books. I found some mentors told on myself of anything I did that was out of order and asked for help, you know, getting my head back together. And I got quiet, but I was broken. And I can remember one of the first um, revelations that I got out of that season. I was actually preaching somewhere. I was out of town preaching. We were broken up. And I was at the altar uh, in between services, I think just crying my eyes out. Like, God, no one here knows how broken I am and how hard. I mean, this was a long time ago, over a decade ago, I think, how broken hearted I am. And I had a vision of a, a funny mirror and a broken mirror. And God said, you're looking at this relationship as a sign of your value. And it's a distorted image. The reason why you're shattered and in pieces the way you feel right now is because you thought that whether he loved you or not was a sign of your value. We got to deal with this, Sarah. And God told me that day very clearly, this is a broken, distorted reflection. And then he started showing me this relative that treated you this way, your ex-husband, this, this one from this season and that one from that season, this is what you've been doing your whole life. You've been in a space where you keep looking to be valued by how, whether they want you, if you think they love you. And then he even showed me that I was doing that in church in a way I didn't know because I wanted to be the pastor's favorite. I didn't have any lustful feelings, ungodly feelings in the respect of anything like that. Like none of that type of stuff. No lust for power, no lust to be seen, heard, popular, get to preach every Sunday, nothing like that. But I wanted, I needed him to put his stamp of approval on me. The one that I ended up leaving that church. I needed to feel that I was in good standing with him. And I realized I had done it in ministry in a different way. So yes, some of those old Sarah things were there, but they were coming different. I had to be the best at whatever I was doing in the ministry. I was in every department you can think of. I was doing all kinds of different ministry very, very early. And so I wanted that validation and that sense of value and that reflection in all of those areas too. So it wasn't the same in the, the, the way it manifested or presented but I was the same that I was looking for outward things, people and experiences to reflect back and mirror back that I was okay, that I was valuable. So this first heartbreak after divorce, um, it showed me what I was capable of. And though I, I could not go back to that hateful, dark, I'm gonna just go find someone else and tell you about them later okay. type of situation. Right. 
I went into a place of depression and sadness and self-hatred again. What is wrong with me? Why didn't he pick me? And I ended up going back and forth with him a few times. And we almost got married on oh. one of the back. Yeah, I almost got married. We were going to elope. We had pastors meeting and everything. And then one night he came over to my house. And this was after breakup and makeup and breakup. And I've changed. I'm different. I know you're the one, all that. And one night, I think I was just kind of holding him on, like, on my chest. And I said, Lord, I give this relationship back to you. If it's really meant, then finish this. If it's not, come in and do whatever you want to do. And within 48 hours, we were broke up and we never made it to the altar. And um, and that, you know, I'll, I'll let you continue to guide how you want to go with the conversation. But that was the beginning of me having to deal with what was not yet healed in my heart as it related to my issue of love, even after my divorce. I mean, are you okay to kind of just stay there? Because, I mean, you know, stay there dealing with, I mean, what was in your heart that needed to be healed? Yeah, I, well, you know, I still didn't think I was valuable. Matter of fact, let's look at my divorce. I thought, yeah. well, I gave you seven children. I, I was faithful to you. I never cheated in marriage. Not with, listen, not with my eyes, not with my heart and not with myself. So I couldn't understand how I gave this man 14 years of my life. Now we were both doing a little of this, that when we were just dating and hanging out. But when I said I do, when we got engaged and married, I was totally faithful. And so when you get out of that, I'm already dealing with these questions. Like what is wrong with me? What is so um, broken in me? Am I not pretty enough? Am I not good enough at this, that, and whatever that this man who I was married to didn't feel that I was worthy of being faithful to or worthy of fighting for? And then, you know, you meet another man who now kind of puts you through the same thing. And here's the other issue I've seen over and over again, the bait and switch. Oh, I want you so much or everything and anything I've ever wanted. Oh, woman of God, Sarah Grace, so annoying, so powerful, so this or so that. And then when they get closer to you, all of a sudden now they don't want you. So I believe that what was still broken in me was wanting to be chosen. Mm. And the truth be told, looking back, you know, God bless that gentleman to this day, um, the one that I dated after my divorce, uh, we're cool. We see each other, we're like, hey, what's up? You know, we even gave it a go years later again. And it just, God never would never seal that. Oh, you know? But, you know, I look back and say, and I'll I've told him, even in years, recent years, we just were not meant for each other. Like, period. It doesn't even matter how much more faithful you're capable of being now. We weren't meant for each other. And so it wasn't even that I was looking at a relationship that really had the capacity to be my purpose partner. I just wanted to be chosen. And I didn't understand how I, and this particular individual celebrated me because I had a higher rank in office and ministry than him. And he kind of made it like I was a superior at times. And it was just like later, you know, you boosted me up. Like I was doing you a favor dating you. And later you kind of chewed me up and spit me out like I was nothing. And it was so hard to understand. So in that understanding, number one, really let God choose, not uh -oh. you. And then here's that lesson. Just because a man desires you doesn't mean he loves you. And mm -hmm. I didn't know the difference. And then, and that was something that was ongoing lesson. And then also just recognizing the deepest, most um, innate part of the whole cycle is wanting to be chosen. And even if you treat me like trash, dog me out and cheat on me, I still want you to come back and choose me as that I'm the one that you want. And so that can be an idol. 
So when did you realize that, um, and I think, isn't it Jeremiah one and five where, you know, I knew you in your mother's womb, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's like God knew who we were before he ever called us to the forefront. That means we were chosen before, before the, before the sperm fertilized the egg, we were chosen. It was that one egg that was chosen. When did you come to recognize I've always been chosen? Honestly, I think those 40s again have been the, the, okay, I'll say it like this, kind of like salvation had seed moments. It was kind of like, yeah, this is how I should think. But then I would go back to the old behavior and then I'd be reminded, yeah, this is how I should think. And then I would go back to like a distracted child, you know? And so I think that it really has hit home in the last few years where it's not even that I one day said, oh, I know. I just started noticing that my habits had changed. And I was able to see that, wait, my whole paradigm, my predispositions, my my uh, core beliefs, values and practices are changing and why. And then you start to self-reflect on the other side of, oh, wait, why am I not kind of like when I went to go smoke that blunt? And I'm like, oh, some of that behavior when someone tries to bring it to me and I, oh, he this particular individual tried to maybe talk to me and. He does the whole uh, interested, not interested thing where maybe I used to cry about. It. I went, oh, well, thank you, God, for showing me him. I'm not crying by the phone anymore. I'm just glad I know. You know, where I started noticing I wasn't crying as much over rejection. I wasn't because, listen, 13 years, there's only been a few. I can't even count on one hand how many people I've even looked at twice in these 13 years. But those few that I did, when they got my interest, they had me locked in. And now I just don't. I still have moments where I'm going to ask those questions. God, you know, you do remember that I'm still single, right? <laughs> God, you you do remember that you sent me 15 prophets and a mule to tell me that my husband coming. Not a mule. <laughs> and there are those moments when I'm like still kind of, uh, you know, I don't prefer this, but I'm okay with it. I don't like uh, my process all the time. But I recognize its value. I know, Dr. Tamika Hall, I promise you this. I know, even if sometimes those thoughts try to come and contradict what I know, I know that a man's treatment of me Uh has never been based on my value and always been based on who they were, not who I am. I can tell you that I know that I know that I know that I know that any abuse, whether it was someone coming at me with that butcher knife, if it was the date rape, the stalker, the, I forgot about that. We'll throw that in there. If it was the, um, whatever was done to me that was toxic. I always looked at myself and thought, what is wrong with you, Sarah? But there came a time I finally was able to say, it wasn't me. It was you. You were narcissistic because you're narcissistic. You are a cheater because you're a cheater. You was a liar, bad English on purpose because you was a liar. Okay. And whatever is wrong or incomplete in me never was a justification for any of the abuse, rejection, abandonment, or disrespect that I ever experienced. And I can't tell you the day I knew that. I can just tell you, I knew that I operated different. I've been able to hang up calls quicker. I've been able to send people Mm -hmm. to voice more faster. I've been able to go, you know what? And my responses became um, less and less toxic on on my side. Now, one thing I can tell you is a great illustration. When I was little going through sickness that we talked about earlier, I had to get allergy shots at one point. So I would go to the doctor and they would introduce three things, two in one arm, one in the other. They would measure these huge bumps on my arms to figure out how bad my reaction was. Then I had to keep going back 
keep going back. And when my reaction became less and less and less, they'd say, you've got it now, we're moving on. That is kind of how deliverance has been in my life. Some of the same things had to keep being reintroduced until I was able to go, I don't care if you like me or not, I like me. I don't care if you think I'm beautiful or not, I like me. I don't care if I'm black enough, white enough, Hispanic enough, whatever enough, religious enough. Like. I, I am what God created me to be. And so my reactions are mm. different. I like the fact, I like how you likened it to the allergy shot, because I think a lot of us will, like you said, will think we've gone through the process and we think that, not that we've arrived, but you know, we think like, okay, listen, I got this together. I have a hold on myself. And then boom, a memory comes and triggers you or boom, you find yourself in a relationship and you give yourself too quickly or, you know, or boom, something knocks you off your kilter. And you think that you are like, you just, you take yourself way back 10, 15, 20 years ago. And really it was just the allergy shot to help you remember, listen, you're not all the way there yet. There's more work for you to do. There's a part in your book where you say there was a moment that you told God one night, I, I still love you, God. And I still say yes, girl. I'm about to cry thinking about that. Even if I have to do it alone. And that almost, and I mean, like, I, it so resonates with me. It almost took me out. I want to ask you, how hard was it for you to get to that place? You know what? It was death. And what I mean by that is it was a choice to commit what I call soul suicide. I felt the pain of that, com that confession. It was me saying, this, this literally feels like it's killing me. Um, it was a pain. And then I was some women, you know, listen, when God healed my heart from that dark, I don't care. I was out with Billy last night and I'm going out with Ray Ray tomorrow. What you going to do about it? When God took that out of me, mm. the, 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 the cursed blessing I have is my heart is so tender. And when I love, I love, I am not her anymore. I don't know how to be her anymore. I will cry before I will cuss you out. I will pray for you before I will go try to talk to your cousin to make you mad. I don't know. I don't know how to be her anymore. I'm not her anymore in the respect of the coldness. So I feel things. So to me, having to feel, I call it a curse, but it's not to feel love on the good side and the bad side, meaning the rejection sometimes of pouring and loving mm -hmm. and having to feel rejection and having to feel it sober and not be able to go to those old things. When I tell you, it felt like it was killing me sometimes. Like I felt like I was dying because it wasn't, listen, it wasn't just being alone. You and I both, I don't, I don't care what anyone thinks, feels or says, we can go find someone yesterday at five o'clock and today at one if we want. That's not yeah. finding a person. Mm -mm. There's always somebody in our DMs, you know, somebody's in your DMs, There's all, mm -hmm. but it's the right person waiting for the right person. So the hardest part for me was when someone got through what seemed to be all the barriers and boundaries, got to my heart, opened my heart and ghosted. That would make me feel like I was going to lose my entire mind because I'm very, I am hard to get. I don't play. I am hard to get for anyone in general, but those few that made it past security. Ooh. And got to me and then left me broken. When I tell you that prayer, it, it was coming from that place of pain. I don't never want to go through this again. And I still say yes, no matter what. And it wasn't at all like I got to a place where I could take it, where I could pray that. It was I'm praying from pain. And I'm saying in my pain, even though I feel like this is killing me because I don't understand it, 
I still say yes. And that wasn't the last time I had to pray that prayer. I've had to say it over and over and over again to God in times of deep disappointment, especially when I thought it was getting ready to happen and it didn't. I'm good if I'm, I could be alone for long periods of time. I went through seven years of absolutely no dating, hand holding, kissing or playing any type of games or situations. And I can remember when I, that eighth year going into that, the end of that seventh year, whenever it was, when I opened my heart again, it was the pain of thinking um, I was getting ready to see it. And it interrupted my life and it came in like a flood and took me captive is what it felt like. And then chewed me up and spit me out is what it kind of felt like. I've had to go back and say, God, it's not just that I want uh, to be married, because I have no desire to be out there having booze and bays. To be married, it's I don't like being teased. And okay. I feel like it has teased me. And it was in one of those moments that I said that initially, and it ended up in the book. But I mean it, and I mean it to this day. Now, like I said, I've had 82, 52, however many prophets in a mule, exaggerating on purpose, okay. tell me that I would be married again. And many times I've even sworn marriage off and said, I don't want it. I have no desire for it because my greatest pain as a single woman in ministry outside of things I've dealt with with my children and my health has been my heartbreak as a single woman believing for godly marriage and being played not by dudes in the streets. By so it's expected. You kind yeah. of expect that. Yeah. It's a, another level. And these men will be prophetic. And here's the thing. Every man I've even had a conversation with about the possibility of a future, I've been able to go back and have a great, friendship with after the fact. But these men can be prophets, preachers, pastors, apostles, and they have their own issues of love. Uh -oh. Sometimes we don't realize we're getting in the ring when they're in a fight with themselves and their own issues. And we take it personal because they're not choosing us and they're choosing three or four other women, but that's something with them. And I've even gotten to a place of healing where I can say, you know what? It hurt what happened to me, but I'm going to pray for my brother and the Lord to be healed so that he doesn't destroy his own life and calling and any more women in Jesus name. <laughs> in Jesus name. So is that how you begin to heal from the heartbreak? Because now we're now we're, we're coming here. You are the Sarah Grace. And I know for myself, like I have felt like because people know who I am, I feel like there have been times that I've been pursued because of that. I've had pastors and bishops and all the titles yes. that have pursued me only for, thankfully, for most of those that have those higher titles, I've come to understand quickly that they just wanted to connect because they felt like I had an audience and a platform that could kind of put them on. But how do you begin to heal from heart heartache when you feel like you know, we're, we're, we're ministers of the gospel, so there really isn't celebrity status, even though people will see it that way? How do you heal when you feel like it's been because of that? Because that's that's a usury on a totally different level. Ooh. I've been used for my body. I've been used because I'm I speak life into people. That's a different level. But I feel like you've used me because of my mantle. How do you <laughs> heal from that? Oh, that's a good one. That right there. That part. Right. Because when yeah. I was in the world, you know, it was the physical things, you know, and even then I had spiritual gifts. I just didn't know how to operate in them properly. Right, but right. 
to um, have men, and even to this day, it's kind of funny because they they don't want to disconnect ever because they know, listen, if nobody else can get a prayer through even, I need a word. Sarah, I know you're mad. Look, I, I need you. Can you pray? God, I know you're mad. I know you're mad. Look, but can you pray for me? Because I know that, you know, can you, listen, I need that anointing. And so you're like, God, how do I navigate through a space where... I want to be a woman of God and even your platform that, you know, you've given us for your glory. Like, do you want me to put someone who's hurt me or do you want me to allow the oil on my life to pray for the man that broke my heart in a million pieces and having to navigate through your calling, your gifting and your yes to God and figure out how that may or may not apply to someone. Because in some cases, God has allowed people to benefit from the anointing on my life. And oh God, that's a whole, that might be part three, but God has allowed people to benefit from my prayer life and things like that. And the the pain of being played by someone in church, especially if they're also gifted and have platforms can be excruciating, horrifying. But in a space of being saved, gifted, anointed, and having a public platform and having people that have tried to uh, you know, get in there for whatever reason, even if it's just to feel good about themselves. I will tell you this, you know, narcissism is like a huge buzzword on social media nowadays. Okay. And a lot of the, the men in leadership, we'll just say in general terms, do deal with that narcissistic behavior. And a lot of them, though, they project to be extremely confident even arrogant, they're actually very, very deeply insecure, ashamed, and they like to gravitate towards power figure women because it scratches that itch of feeling. And I've had men actually say, oh, I got Sarah Grace with me. Well, I'm here with Sarah Grace. I got Grace in my life. And like they like to use the name of the brand and everything <laughs> to, to feel good, whether they even got into the place where I was considering them or they were just people I was sort of kind of giving them a chance to talk me out of giving them a chance. And I've seen people use that. So one thing I have done um, as far as being more protective, like who sent you? Like I'm going to God, who sent you? Cause they will come in your inbox, woman of God, we need to work together. Woman of God, I see our gifts. Woman of God, the Lord, and, and don't let them go into a soulish realm and start reading your soul and calling it prophecy. And say, I see the Lord is listen. So I will take my time and how I respond to who I respond to. I'm much more careful. I don't care if you bishop, archbishop, uh, pastor, prophet, got eight million followers. I don't know that Lord. anyone got eight million. I am going to pray and seek the Lord. If you try to talk to me, get my phone number, inbox me, whatever, to protect myself. But as far as the healing, understanding that men of God are just as broken as men that don't have God. And it's not for sake of the healing being available, but does the church really bring accountability and focus on these areas? Do we really call people on the carpet in a godly way where they can be restored and not condemned? You know, and so I've started to have compassion, just like God looked beyond my faults and saw my needs when I was out there being a whole player in my teens. Some of these preachers that have done these things and it's hurt me so bad, I had to be able to try to see them through the same eyes God looked at me in and take it so personal that if they're trying to use me or get a hold of me or climb my ladder or whatever it is, there's something so broken and desperate in them. I'm just a victim of their circumstance, but I can set a boundary, remove myself from that situation and pray for them, but try to depersonalize my victimization of their narcissism 
or whatever it is that they did uh, that hurt me, if that makes sense. A thousand percent. I mean, you talk about forgiveness on a whole nother level, um, maturity as well. And I had to learn through this season as God began to hold the mirror up to me and I began to look at myself, I found myself moving in a space of forgiveness that I didn't think was possible, a yeah. space of the understanding. Um, you know, they may not ever have access to me again, but I understand. And also from a spiritual sense, which we we could, that would be like hour number four of us hanging out. But spiritually, right. I began to sp see the spirits that had been chasing me my whole life were on them too. Right. And those spirits connected and brought us together. Like, you know, it's amazing how when you let God come in and do a thing, you begin to see things very differently. Right. And um, this God thing is so powerful, isn't it? Isn't it just powerful? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. That part. <laughs> so powerful. So in, in just kind of rounding things out, I know that you are essentially in your space of a man fast, right? Which is why it was just so perfect for you to be here. What advice do you have for women that are Actually, let me do it this way. What about the woman who, because I get a lot of these, I don't want to call them babies, but you know, I, I baby everybody. I don't know why I'm like that, but that will inbox me where they've fallen. Yeah. And they're like, I was, because I've been there. Like, I, Lord, I was doing so well. And I allowed this person to break past that barrier, get into my heart. And I allowed my flesh to do the talking. What do you say to the woman who's been there? She she's been doing she's been doing the right things. She falls, and she does she doesn't know how to get back up again. What do you say to her in terms of picking up and moving forward in her own manifest? God's not mad at you. Number one, God is not mad at you, and you may be mad at you. You may even feel like you hate you sometimes. Maybe making excuses for you. I don't know. We all have different ways we process, but God is not mad at you. He is there with an extended hand, ready to help you get up out of that space. And so I want to encourage you to look at what you, you know, went through as a lesson. Say, you know what? There's some areas I need to be strengthened. There's some areas I need new skills. Don't even question your own devotion and love for God. You didn't have the skill set. You didn't have the renewed mind. You didn't have the support you needed to be as strong as you thought you were. So get back up, dust yourself off, ask God for more grace, get into spaces of learning yourself, whether that's with a coach, a counselor, a pastor, a therapist, read these books that we have for you and begin to strengthen your skill set. Because we don't fall because we don't love God. We fall because we don't have the skills we need in order to defeat those specific temptations. Find out what your triggers are. What is your Achilles heel they taught us about when we were in uh, school? It was that certain area of this athlete God, I think it was in mythology, that if they hit that heel or what is that place of weakness? What is your, your kryptonite, Superman? What is it that, that causes you to fall? Identify it. And then become master over learning how to protect that area of your life. And please know this, as I pass the mic back, God was never clocking on your ability. Uh, he knows that your flesh is failure prone. He's clocking on your dependence on him to get you through this. So seek him. Ask him for his grace. Release yourself to embrace that grace. Know that God gets more glory out of your dependence and your performance. And trust and know that he will guide you. And I, I pray you never fall again 
But if you do, keep getting up and learn from each one. And so one day you'll look back and say, man, I made it a year. I made it two years. I made it three. And you'll make it into the promises God has for you. I love it. I love it. Well, listen, you guys, I definitely know I'm going to have to have Sarah Grace back um, because there's so many untapped waters that we could have waded through. I thank you, Sarah Grace, for just, just thank you for your time and hanging out with me. Um, man, just so much that we can unpack here. And y'all, I hope that you take the nuggets that you've learned here and know that God is not just making you wait for no reason. Just right. like he's completing the work in you, he's completing the work in the man that's going to come in your life. But there are benefits to that righteous living. And I want to tell you that the man of your prayers is on the way. Remember that I love you. You were created to make God famous and he has anointed you to do hard things. Until next time, you have a blessed day.